back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 100 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app to listen to them all. On today's show, my guest, Sean S., shares a story that should be required listening for any recovering alcoholic facing a devastating loss early in their sobriety. In Sean's case, he was three years into his program when he got word in the middle of the night that his brother might have been a passenger on a helicopter that crashed on the East Coast. In the frantic hours that followed, Sean's sponsor directed him to a 6.30 a.m. meeting at a local AA club. By the time he arrived, Sean had learned that there had been one survivor of the crash, but it wasn't his brother. Crushed by the reality of his brother's death, Sean tearfully shared with the group about this horrible loss of his younger brother, with whom he had been so incredibly close and had just seen on the previous weekend. Sean was enveloped by a group of people in a cocoon of love, empathy, and support. By the time he reached New York to bury his brother, Sean had received more than 100 texts and phone calls of support, including those from AA members he hardly knew. The lessons that Sean and his AA fellows learned from that terrible event ultimately turned out as a blessing to them all. To me, the God part of it all is that it was Sean's brother who'd convinced him to go to AA in the first place. Sean's tale of becoming an alcoholic, despite both his father and sister being long-term AA members, will be readily identifiable to those who were functional alcoholics years before coming into the program. Like many of us, he was seriously challenged by feelings of low self-esteem and unworthiness. Sean still managed to carve out an incredibly successful career on Wall Street, albeit as a drunk. But the escalation of his problems related to drinking overtook that success, and he quickly spiraled downward. And though he somehow managed to stay dry without AA for four years, and then sober in AA for five years after he relapsed, it wasn't until he buckled down to the program eight years ago that his life turned around with a grateful acceptance of God and AA into his daily life. I'll leave the rest of the story for you to savor during this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, Sean S. My name is Sean and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Sean. Hey, Howard. I'm so glad that you're able to be here with me this morning on AA Recovery Interviews. You're coming to us uh, from Connecticut. How many years ago was it that you left Houston to move to Connecticut? My son is a freshman high school, so nine and a half years ago. God, that's amazing. Yeah, it that's is. That's amazing. You were in Houston after being in San Francisco for a while. How long were you in Houston? I was in Houston for uh, almost five years. And during that time is when you and I got to know each other. We went to some of the same meetings together. What was it that brought you into AA in the first place? For a couple of years, I had been really circling the drain, you know, uh-huh. with, with alcohol and, and some drugs. But my it was really what did it was a Thursday night. I don't know where my then wife and very young son were, but they weren't at home and I hadn't yet had anything to drink and, and which is kind of miraculous because I'd get home and drink immediately. I wasn't, mm -hmm. I didn't, wasn't a day drinker. Anyway, my brother called me up uh, and he told me that he thought I had a drinking problem. He got very direct 
with me about it. My father was an AA and was alive at the time and had been an AA by that time, 35 years, I mean, quite some time. Uh And my sister had been in the program, uh, just my brother, my sister and I, my sister had been in the program at that time, probably close to 30 years. Right. uh, And we knew that it was in the family. Uh, mm. And he just said to me, you know, you've sca- you've scared me in the past months. I don't know what else you're doing besides drinking, but you're drinking too much. You've got a great son, beautiful, a beautiful young son and, and, and a wonderful wife. He goes, I don't know what you're doing, but you're going to AA. And huh. it caused a huge fight. You know, I, I got very personal with him and said hurtful things. Anyway, he said, great, that's fine. Oh, oh, you can say whatever you want, but you're going to an AA meeting. This is your older brother. Younger. A couple years younger than I am. And But he always, like when once we got to be adults, he became, in a sense, my older brother. He was always the, the more mature, move to the suburbs, have a bunch of kids guy. Uh-huh. Let me ask you, just to kind of set the stage here correctly, tell me your sobriety date. My sobriety date is January 25th, 2015. So I've been sober just over eight years, right? So let me ask you this. So your sister who I know, and she's really sweet. She's in AA for a long time mm-hmm. when that call is made by your brother. And your dad's been in AA for a number of years. Why was it your brother who had to ask you to do it instead of one of them? Or were they, how did they look at you and the way you were acting and drinking? My dad, I didn't see my dad all that often in those years. And he had, my mom had passed away long before any of this happened. Uh, My dad was living in Ohio with a a relatively new wife, a wonderful woman. uh, and, And he didn't see me. My sister knew that I had struggled with alcohol and I had stopped drinking on my own for at one period for four years prior to moving to Houston. And she got me the AA big book. And I still have that book. And she gave it to me and she told me that she thought that AA would be helpful to me. I wasn't receptive to it. I don't think I was obnoxious. She might have a different story, Uh uh uh, but I wasn't, I didn't want to admit that I really had a problem. I, I don't know what I thought. Like, I'm not drinking for four years. Obviously, I didn't drink for four years for uh-huh. a reason. The conflict really was with with my wife, who didn't understand why I hadn't listened to her, that it took my brother just one phone call. And that worked mm-hmm. because getting to that call again for a second was she got home that night or the next day and said to me, and I told her about the call and I, I didn't drink that night uh-huh. and which was hard. And, and I told her and Saturday morning I went to my first AA meeting, but that caused a, a lot of conflict with her. She was not happy about that, that, that I wouldn't listen to her, but I'd listen to my brother. When was that? I'll tell you, it was, it was February of 2009. One of the things you and I have talked about in the past, and I've mentioned it a few other times in various interviews that I've done, and that is that sometimes it's really, really difficult for our spouses to understand why we will talk to somebody in the program about a certain thing that we won't talk to them about, or why we'll take somebody else's advice instead of our own spouse who's been with us much longer. How did you respond to her when she gave you that feedback? I think actually, surprisingly with empathy, I understood her issue with that. And I, I tried to explain to her that, like, I grew up in an alcoholic family mm-hmm. and that my brother calling me out on it was extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. And it was. Mm-hmm. That there was always this implicit promise to each other that we, my, between my brother and I, who were very close, that we would, like, call each other out on, on the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. And he did. 
obviously now we're talking many, many years later. She's fine with it all. But it, it, it took quite a while for her to be okay with that. I want to be very clear about something. Um, she found the meeting I went to. She took me to that meeting. I don't recall why. I think that she just wanted to be supportive. And she told me, I'm glad you're going. Like, you need to go. Yeah. She just didn't like what, what it took to get me there. So this was the first time that you went into AA. When she took you to that meeting, how long did you stay sober after you went to that first meeting? You know, Howard, I'm never really sure. I, it, I was sober when I moved up here. So I want to say it was something like five, six years. Uh-huh. Because I don't remember my first drink on the relapse. When you got to AA the first time, this is the one where your wife takes you. That was the very first time you'd ever gone to an AA meeting? Yeah, not even, I never even went with my dad. That's correct. You go to the very first meeting and then you stay sober in AA for a period of time until you relapse and then you come back from the relapse and that date you came back is your new sobriety date or did it happen a couple more times? No, that is my new sobriety date. Now, when you went to your first AA meeting, obviously things had got sufficiently bad for your brother to say something to you about it. Had he been talking to you about it all along and then gave you that ultimatum? Or is this something that your behavior was occurring and he was not as aware of it as he was on the, the date that he told you that he wanted you to go? Actually, there was quite a delay. He called me in February uh -huh. and he was talking about an incident that occurred um, on my 50th birthday in August. Uh -huh up in, in the Adirondacks uh -huh. on a lake house. And I, my 50th birthday was the first time I, as he, as he told me, I scared his children. I didn't do anything violent, but they just saw Uncle Sean like fall down drunk. It's embarrassing even to, to speak to you, you know, my dear friend. It just, it's, uh, but it was, no, there had not been an ongoing dialogue. I think he just decided I'm going to call him. I, I wish you were around now. I'd ask him, yeah. like, why, why did you call me then? Yeah. Like, why did you wait till, you know, six months later? Now, where were you living at this point? We were just moving to Houston. That's in September of 08 and February of 09, I get a phone call from him about the drinking that occurred in August of 08. So I don't know what that time difference is about. The time between when he saw the behavior and actually said something to you about it, do you get the sense that he was hearing from others or he was in some other nascent way seeing what or hearing about what you were doing? I would not be surprised if he was speaking with my wife about it then. Yeah. I've never, I've never asked her because I don't want her to feel defensive or anything that like she might feel. Right. Because whatever conversations they were having about my drinking were entirely appropriate, right? They're, yeah, I get that. I mean, I wouldn't have liked it at the time, right? But right. as I look back, it like, would have been okay. Your initial period of sobriety was? Five years. Okay, so five years on your initial sobriety. Mm -hmm. And then you slip. And how long were you, were you out there for? August till January. So five four or five months. Okay. And then you came back in. I was still going to meetings. Right. But you, you weren't sober. No, I was, I said that just because of the insanity of it right. all. Right. It's like, <laughs> like, like, you're still going to meetings, right? I wasn't telling anyone I was drinking. Yeah. I, I was saying, you know, and if somebody asked me, I would say I've got, and then I would have known how much time I had. Five and a half years. I've got five and a half years. Right. Like I was at those meetings. I, I didn't have five days. Right. I would go from those meetings to a bar. That's tough. Cool thing about it is that the only requirement for membership in AA is the desire to stop. Even if you've taken a drink that morning or the night before, if you've got the desire to stop, then you're still welcome as a member. 
that's occurred to me many times. And I think that's one of the many, many, many beauties of our program, yeah. right, is that you are welcome. So we're talking about two periods of sobriety, the last one being your current one. We're talking about a short relapse of about five or six months. We're talking about what led up to you coming to your first AA meeting after your brother had said something to you about it. Mm -hmm. I'd like to kind of rewind here a little bit and take a look back at your family of origin. A lot of times people wonder, and I know I did early on, not so much anymore, but how people can have a parent who's very active in AA and they themselves turn out to be an alcoholic. You're, you said your dad was in AA. What was your family of origin like? And, and how about the lineage of alcoholism within the uh, Sean family? That I know of, it was only on, on both parents' side, it was only manifesting itself in my dad's drinking. Yeah. My mom en enjoyed alcohol, but never it was never an issue mm -hmm. or a problem with her. Um, it was growing up like it was it was very obvious that it was there my dad got sober the summer that i turned uh, that i turned 13 uh-huh but when i look at you know grandparents and, and there was no issues that I, that i saw and I, I knew all four of my grandparents fairly well mm -hmm. but it was it was my dad and my dad hit his bottom he lost he lost both parents he was about to lose his, his job permanently uh -huh. he was about to lose his family his wife three kids and he went into his first AA meeting in um, in July of 1971, and never stopped going to AA. Never relapsed, and he died just a couple of months short of four, of 40 years in the program. He was pretty public about it. You know, you know how some people like are pretty quiet about it. Yeah. And my dad wanted people to know that like this is the way he's going to die. He's going to live and die, and he, you know he claims AA saved his life. Huh. It's like a big AA guy. Lo loved it. Loved AA. Do you recall when you were a child when he first went in, what was his behavior like before he started going to Alcoholics Anonymous? Pretty awful, like garden variety drunk. Um, he, he'd come home from work every day very drunk. Like he worked in New York City. We lived in New Jersey. He commuted and he got off that bus loaded. It caused a lot of shame. He was, the, you know, Cub Scouts growing up. He was a Cub Master and he'd be fall down drunk at meetings and oh. you know the kids knew and I, I got teased for it I've heard of, of a lot worse uh, for sure um, but it, it was it wasn't what I'd call pleasant so your dad's behavior was it was it ever abusive to you while he was drunk no I was he wasn't abusive he was emotionally fairly absent because it's hard to be present when we're drinking right was your mother around at that time Mm -hmm. And and he went into AA. It, it's interesting. What I remember vividly is that he was in AA and she seemed to get angrier with him. Really? And I think it's because of, well, we expect miracles, right? right? When people go in AA, we think everything's going to get better, right? Immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I remember thinking, you know, cut the guy a break. Yeah. Like he's, he's trying to do the right mm -hmm. thing. And then he tried to get back into being a parent mm -hmm. and my mom was having none of that mm. right? it was like like where have you been for the past whatever wow 15 18 years what kind of stories were you and your sister and your brother telling each other or telling yourselves about your dad and his behavior before he got sober and then after he got sober i think my mom did a great job with us um in very trying circumstances uh -huh. um 
you know, on, on top of his drinking, it wasn't unusual that there wasn't enough money. He always had a job, always had the same yeah. job. It didn't seem to be enough to, and we did live far from an extravagant life, but it wasn't, it was enough. We heard this in a small house as you often hear these arguments. So it was, it was scary uh, that we might not have enough money. She thought she was whispering when I heard, you know, there was not enough money for food this week or, or whatever. But my mom told all of us that your dad is a great man. He just has a problem and he has an addiction to alcohol the same type of addiction that you hear about with with regular drugs is what she said. In, in a sense, when you think about this, this is the you know mid to late sixties and very early seventies to say mm-hmm. that you know that he has an addiction and he has a, a medical problem was pretty progressive, right? For the time, at least I think it was, and I, I think that she did a very good job explaining to us what the situation was. You know, I was very, very close with her parents. Um, I, I thank God for that because I saw, like, what what a man should be like by my grandfather, and uh, so I was very close with them. But my dad, I, I wasn't close with. I wondered, as a kid, how did you feel when you saw your dad drunk, either just when he came home from work or when he was trying to participate with you in some of the things with other parents and children? A lot of shame. Like a, a lot of shame, a, a huge amount of embarrassment. Uh huh. You know, when you're a kid, it's like you think you're the only one that has a drunk parent, right? Uh, I'm quite sure if I looked around my classrooms, there were plenty of others. And I, I subsequently found out through AA just how many other kids had parents in the program. Uh, but it was, I, I just say, a, a lot of embarrassment and, and shame. Um, the anger came later. Anger toward him came later. Was this before you got into AA or after you? Before I got into AA. Okay, so the anger shows up later, Mm -hmm. but when you're a little kid, and you mentioned earlier about being ridiculed and uh, made fun of because of your dad Mm -hmm. and his behavior. So then he gets sober in 1971. What was your feeling when he got sober? I didn't trust it to begin with. Why not? Had he tried before and failed or what? He's on his own, but he had not tried with AA. Like, okay. he was, for lack of a better word, he was very proud that he, like, you know, picked up one desire chip, right? That he that he walked in and he got it, right? You know, we now know that that's just a very fortunate thing for some people. And for other people, they pick up a few desire chips. What matters is where you are now. But I didn't trust it. But then I saw how often he went to these meetings, and I, you know, I knew where they were. I, I started to get like a, a sense of Thursday night is like the Presbyterian church, you know, a couple of miles uh-huh. from my house. Like I knew they were in church basements. And uh, uh-huh. I look back now and I realized that like he had a coffee commitment at one of these things, like, like basically forever. Like he made the coffee and, and there was some envy or, or anger that started to come out because it sort of seemed that like that AA became his new thing, right? That was what he was tied to. And, and again, my mom said to me, well, isn't it better if he's tied to AA than he's tied to drinking? And I thought, okay, I hate when mom's that right, but she was, she pretty much had that one. Um, yeah, that sounds like the family afterwards chapter in the big book yes. and all the things it discusses yes. about, you know, after all this time he gets sober. So why is he not around us now? Well, because he's in AA all the time. Right. I can imagine a lot of those things in the family afterwards 
you know, are probably pretty salient in your situation, yes. huh? Yes, very much so. Your dad's going to all these meetings. He's no longer showing up drunk at home. Right. Uh, did he did he change his behavior with regard to spending time with you or your siblings or being committed in other ways that he hadn't been prior to getting sober? Yes. Yeah. It was it was noticeable. I, it's it's hard to remember because it's a considerable time ago. But yes, he did. He showed up. He suited up and showed up like just to everything, you know, whether it was just picking me up after a, a school event, you know, going to a school event, going to a baseball game of mine. He, he wasn't missing things. I remember seeing his books. We just had one bathroom in our house. And I remember seeing the Daily Reflections and, and reading the Daily Reflections. And I'm like, is he going to AA or is he going to church? And and I asked him about that, right? I said, I, I read this book and he said, you know, he goes, it's actually a little bit of both. He goes, you know, he goes, you got to believe in, he said, you got to believe in God for this to work. And uh, it wasn't until many years later that I sort of understood what he was talking about. Yeah. I, I didn't, at the time, Howard, I, I did, it didn't matter to me. You know, what mattered was, he was yeah. he was sober and you know things seemed to be working with his job he wasn't embarrassing me they were still fighting now and they, you know there was no immediate miracle so the marital issues didn't subside when he got sober but he he turned out to be a more responsible let's say more present father no. as a result of getting no sober question. uh how many years are there between your sister and you and your younger brother uh, my sister is one year and three days older than I am. My brother was two and a half years younger than I was. There's a very closeness in age there between the three of you growing up. So yes. y'all would have experienced somewhat the same behavior around the same time. That's correct. What was your home like with regard to religious upbringing or any kind of spiritual connectedness as, a, as children? My dad was Irish Catholic uh -huh. from New England. Uh, and my mom came from a WASPy uh -huh. professional family in, in New Jersey. They, they just told the story about when they decided to get married that my father wanted to raise them Catholic, raise uh -huh. any children Catholic. And my mother, who was Protestant and really more agnostic yeah. than, than anything, she said, you can raise them Catholic. I just have nothing to do with it. And, and she didn't. So church was something we had to go to with my dad. Uh -huh. We went to mass with my dad. And my mother... My mother never went to church with us. She stayed at home when we went to church. I don't think of myself as growing up in a typical Irish Catholic family because we didn't go to Catholic schools. Like it wasn't, it wasn't that Catholic of a thing. It was, it was more church, you know, first communion, confirmation, you know, go yeah. do communion, go home. It wasn't, it was not a big part of our life. So your sister is a year older than you. She's been sober now a very long time. So. How old was she when she got sober and what was what was her life like before she got sober as a member of the original family? She got sober in her 20s. I want to say she wasn't she wasn't older than 26 mm -hmm. when she moved to Nashville and she's still there and she she got sober I think within a year of moving there. My mom was greatly concerned about her drinking her, her last year uh -huh. living at home. Um, I wasn't really around much because I was going to graduate school, um, and then I moved with my first job to Chicago. 
what I've heard, and I don't know how, how true it is, is it's not unusual for women to get to circle the drain faster, right? And she, she circled uh -huh. it fast and furious, and she got in the program and, and, like my dad, you know, picked up one desire chip, and she's 36 years in the program. I've had the privilege of meeting her uh, a few times over the years and certainly staying in touch with her. She's a beautiful mm -hmm. person. Now, let me ask you, how old were you when you first, when you took your first real drink on your own volition? Uh, how old were you and what were the circumstances? 13. I was at a friend's house and his parents were never home. And there was some, there was a full bar, right? This awfully <laughs> tacky full bar. And we looked at it all. Nothing looked too appealing except there was something, some uh -huh. apricot brandy. And we drank a lot of it. I did not have that feeling we that we hear often in in the rooms of you know I was sold on my first you know it, uh -huh. I loved the way it made me feel. It, it wasn't like that. It it didn't. I I didn't love the way it made me feel. Did you get drunk the first time? I would say probably not. But it wasn't far thereafter that I did because it's always like so. I was thirteen then. So. I, you know, I started high school at 14. The drinking age in those years was 18. And, and it was also the permissiveness around it was was unbelievable, right? It's drinking and driving. People made jokes about it, um, as you know. And by the time I was 14, like drinking beer, like on weekends with my friends was, was a uh -huh. regular thing. And I did get drunk and I did like it. And I did like it. Did you get sick at all or did you pass out or black out at all in those early years? I'm sure, I, I know there were a couple times I got sick, but blacking out and passing out, no. And my parents knew that I occasionally had a beer. I don't think they had any idea how much. It wasn't like you can't ever drink. Uh, my dad never said that. I kind of wish he'd had a little sit down with me and told me <laughs> what I've told my son, right? I know that was the same for me. I, neither of my parents drank, so I, I had no real frame of reference. My older sister was a hippie pothead, and my brother was so much older than I, I, I really wasn't very much involved in his life. But I don't know that it would have made that big of a difference anyway. Did you stick with a certain crowd of guys? I, I didn't fit into any one group. Like, we hear this a lot, right? There was no one group that I that I fit into. Like, I was part jock, part preppy guy, part hippie guy part nerdy guy like i i, I kind of roamed around the different groups and i i just played a couple of sports but but uh -huh. nothing terribly good you know so I, I wasn't involved in athletics to speak of until my senior year in high school so i had plenty of time and i wasn't at the time a particularly good student meaning i, I didn't really do the work uh -huh. or any work um so i had more more than enough time i had jobs to to pay for my a car or whatever what was your self-esteem like while you were in high school? Low. It was I don't belong, you know, and not I'm not good enough, you know. It's interesting because my son's now in high school, right? I'm an older dad, but my son's in high school, and I see complete opposite of what I am. I see a, a can do. I don't know how to do mm -hmm. it, but I'm gonna go do it, right? Which makes me enormously proud of of him. But with me, I, I thought, well, you, know, you can't do that. Those guys are football players, right? They're they're studs. I look back, they're like 
14 and 15 year olds had to learn how to play the game. I, I don't know what I thought. I did not think I was all that good or, or deserving of any girl to talk to me or anything at that. A teenager might might think so i'd say it was standard aa low self-esteem that's the case for so many of us when you were in high school and you were having the opportunity to drink with your friends your motivation for drinking was it be social with your friends to fit in or were you chasing some kind of certain feeling or trying to escape others i think it was mostly the former that like it was it was the weekends like we had yeah. too much time on our hands and it was just it was just fun hanging out drinking beer watching a rangers game on tv or something like that it wasn't like you know people talk about getting this particular high the first time and how they're chasing that and they never get it back it uh -huh. wasn't that for me i think i i drank too much in high school but it, it wasn't i didn't drink an yeah. unusual amount for what was the norm in those days which we'd consider a lot today was marijuana on the scene yet when you were in high school? It was all around. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't like huh. it. I yeah. tried it. I either couldn't get high from it or it made me feel completely the opposite of why people do it. It made me very anxious. Yeah, I get that. And I and always did. I mean, I tried it just again a few times during my life and it never, it never did anything for me. So no, high school was pure, pure booze. Yeah, no drugs in high school. Okay, so the years after you get out of high school, can you kind of unpack those for us? I went to a, a local uh -huh. state college, which uh, couldn't have been very hard to get into <laughs> if, if I got in. Something happened there, Howard. It was I, I, I fell in love, fell huh. in love with learning. Yeah, I just realized just how cool school could be and how much there was mm -hmm. to learn. I'd always enjoyed reading, I always enjoyed the newspaper, but I didn't realize how much you could learn. And I was taking a class in European history and I, I was huh. blown away. I, I could go back to that college and tell you the exact spot where I was when I was walking going, oh my God, this is like wow. really cool. And I transferred to a, a mm -hmm. better state college out of that one. And my grades just went, like did a oh. moonshot. I mean, this, I became a really good student in college, graduating in four years with a high GPA and all of that. You know, I'd say that I drank what would be considered to be like, not quite up to frat standard, because I didn't go to a, a school that had fraternities, but I drank a fair amount. The drinking age was 18. At the student center, there was a bar and the bar opened at noon. Uh, you know, my self-esteem went up. You know, I was getting good grades. I was thinking, I would say more in line with who I was. I, I kind of knew who I was. I, at that point in my life, I had things I wanted to do. I, I was trying to figure out whether I wanted to, you know, pursue a, like an MBA or whether I wanted to be a lawyer. And uh, I chose, the, I chose the former and just applied myself. You know, I figured out, you know, a path to begin a career. And hmm. God, it was like I became mature overnight. I don't know what what happened there. Um, your consumption of alcohol matured along with you? Meaning grew? Yeah. Yes, I would. But didn't interfere. Interestingly, it did not, inter that I'm aware of, interfere with anything. So you, you were able to still drink and get good grades and graduate. We might call that functional alcoholism. But I think back when I was in college, it was more about, well, that's just what you did. And because you're young and it didn't affect my grades or my social life very much. But it was after that that things started to kind of unravel. My experience was that things didn't come unglued for 
for quite some time. I wasn't a daily drinker. Not that uh-huh. that's a, a barometer of anything, but that's what I became. When I got to graduate school, uh, it was in New York City. I won't say there were weeks I went without drinking, but certainly many, you know, many days, and it didn't affect me whether I did. But if I did drink, I can't remember like a time in my life where, for the most part, that I had two beers, right? And it wasn't binge drinking, but it was always too much. It was always five or six or something like that. I always like to ask, when was the first time you noticed your drinking having negative consequences? Oh, many years later. I'd say 15 years after I got my MBA. What was that 15-year period like for you before the alcohol started to affect your life? Actually, it was a good run. I got a couple of good breaks with my career. I got a job on Wall Street, which my brother and I always joked. You know, that was the goal. It was like, and we didn't even know what it was. We just knew that the people that had nice houses and towns all, all in our town all, all worked on Wall Street. And, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. we said, well, whoever gets there is going to pull the other one up and, and into there. And I got a job out of college and worked for a few years in commercial banking and then got a job selling junk bonds. And I was astonished at the, the amount of money that was going on. This is the 80s in, in New York City. And like I'm living yeah. in the city, working in the city, you know, and I started to make, you know, some decent change. And, you know, my, my brother immediately said to me, he goes, OK, you got to get me in there, too. And I did. <laughs> and so we had we the two of us had a hell of a nice run together. So it was those years. Wow. They were good years. Howard, I had nothing to complain about. Like I had come from a working class, middle class family. I was the first one to go to college. And you know, uh-huh. now I'm working in New York City at a prestigious investment banking firm, you know, selling a whole bunch of junk bonds and living a very good life. My, my ego did get out of hand. My ego uh-huh. started yeah. to become not my amigo, right? You know, I'm hanging around with a lot of people that I never thought I'd be hanging around with. Very successful, highly educated people. And you know, drinking was involved, but, you know, but, but for 15 years, it was not, I mean, we're talking late nineties till I started to notice that I was, you know, that I was drinking too much. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA recovery interview series and my big book podcast, check out lost stories of the big book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. Every now and then I'll run across a person who had a block of years during which they drank what we would consider like a normie, you know? Right. They, they had a period of time where they drank and maybe they overdrank or drank too much on occasion, but it never became problematic or indicative of a future problem with alcoholism. It, how would you characterize the 15 years with regard to the drinking that did go on during that time? I'd say I compartmentalized it, right? I just knew that Sunday through Wednesday was zero alcohol. 
Thursday night, uh-huh. we went out and we would just yeah. have a, a strict thing. We, we we had a curfew on ourselves. We'd be home by midnight, which which was plenty of time to do damage. But, you know, when you're getting up at six, yeah. at least you're getting six hours of sleep. Um, huh. And then on the weekends, you know, it was uh, a lot of a lot of drinking on, on the weekends, um, going out with my friends to different places in Manhattan and, and drinking, you know, yeah. fun music you know going to sporting events you know the knicks the the rangers the, you know the mets who were very good those days a lot of that stuff but alcohol surrounded all the fun stuff you know we don't disparage people who can go out and drink without consequences or with minor consequences or who can go out and drink like normal people it's when it starts to turn on us that the real problem is sounds like you had a lot of discipline during that time, if you were able to hold off to Thursday every week, that's a big chunk of time that you did not have a problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Maybe you were drinking excessively on occasion, but not often. So what occurred in those later years that started to lead you down the road towards the disease itself? I, you know, I've thought about this over the years. I, I think you go down to the, you, you get back to the root insecurity. It's like it's like my, my successes in my career they probably occurred too too fast and too easily, not because I was a superstar, uh-huh. but, but because I had this weird cross section of talent that that industry was mm-hmm. paying a lot for in those days. So I think that I, I I started to believe that I didn't deserve it, right? That I would that I was a fraud. Mm. Um, you know, I'd go to fancy country clubs and I felt like I was going with with other people that grew up in these fancy you know suburbs whether it's westchester county outside new york city or fairfield county up in connecticut and uh-huh. I, I just felt like i didn't belong at these really fancy country clubs and it, i just felt really out of place uh-huh. in certain things like it, when i was doing my work fine in new york city fine but there were certain places i went to where i really felt very uncomfortable and that's probably where the drinking starts like started to become a problem what did alcohol do for those feelings that you had of the low, the low self-esteem, the, the imposter syndrome, let's call it, where you felt like you didn't belong in and amongst all these groups of people? It numbed it. You know, a, a quick story. So I was out at some uh, fancy, we had an outing and it was a corporate finance outing and we had up at, at some fancy club up in, in Westchester County and living in New York City. And, and we go up there and I, of course, I'm not, I'm not used to country clubs, didn't grow up with them. So I bring in my bag, I bring shampoo, right. I bring soap, I bring all this stuff, my own towels, like that, right? <laughs> and uh, so everyone's golfing, I don't golf, I play tennis, which like luckily I was a decent at tennis, so I didn't feel like an idiot there not being able to play golf. So I play tennis and I go in to take a shower and I go into the shower and the guys got the towels wrapped around them and I go in the shower and I'm the only guy with my own soap, my own shampoo, right? I got my own towels. I felt like everyone's looking at me. They probably didn't even notice me, did not care. So I took my stuff <laughs> and yeah. I, I just threw it in the garbage can. And I, would, I don't know, Howard, I was so embarrassed, right? I do this, so uh-huh. I take a shower, I come out and I see somebody with my shoes and I think they're taking my shoes and they're not taking my shoes. Someone's shining my shoes. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, I've never had my shoes shined without asking to be shined. And you know, that wasn't too often. Right. And I yelled at this young kid for like, what are you doing with my shoes? And he was horrified. All he was, was this young kid trying to make money 
shining everyone's shoes. And the people around me are like, what the hell's wrong with you, Sean? The guy's shining your shoes. Just give him a few bucks uh-huh. and like, be done with it. And I apologized immediately. I said to him, I'm sorry. I, I didn't grow up yeah. with this stuff. This is all new to me. So like immediately thereafter that, like that, that right there, there was like a bunch of drinking, right? You know, just, I got to make that go away. Cat was out of the bag. and That was, ooh, yeah. Well, I'm a fraud. I don't know anything. Because you spoke about these people I was working with. I felt like all of them, which wasn't the case, but I felt like all of them went to fancy prep schools, went to the best colleges. All of them went to Harvard Business School or Wharton in my mind. Right? They're all like the best of the best. That's what I felt like. So I felt like I, I went from being pretty much okay with myself to being far from okay with myself. Is it safe to say you could drink along with the best of them, though? And did that even the playing field for you? In what ways would that have been the case? You mean the quantity? Well, just let's say the frequency, the quantity, the behavior even. That I have. Like the behavior, like like I could behave like I completely belong. Like it was, to- it was a total put on. But yes, like, you, you know, Sean's a fun guy. Did it take the alcohol to do that for you? It took the alcohol to do that for me as the day and went into the night. Yes, it did. Were these the days of the two martini lunches or the three martini lunches or those days had passed already? Those days had passed. Right. Okay. And you were also in a profession that people tended to eat at their desks and that kind of stuff during the day. Yeah. They brought your lunch to you because they wanted you. You weren't making money for them if you were away from a trading desk. You were were on it all day long. And they didn't care what you did the night before. Okay. You could spend a, the, the two martini lunch may have gone away, but spending a fortune taking clients out didn't go away. Like getting absolutely hammered with yeah. clients did not go away. That was all. That was part of the whole deal. The whole thing was they didn't care what time you got home. They didn't care what you did. They didn't care what you spent. But you better be at the desk at seven a.m. So tell me about how things start to unravel at the ending of this fifteen-year period. So I had a place in New York City. I, I bought a, a really, it was my second place. And I, it was very nice. I was overlooking Central Park. And part of it was overlooking the park. The other part of it was looking downtown to Manhattan. I mean, it was, it was, like, a, it was like a movie kind of thing. <laughs> but it wasn't the last hour. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I say that only because I got home and immediately drank. Like I kept a case of wine at, at all times in my apartment loads of beer and I did not go out socially with people during the week but I got home and I I got off the subway at 86 and Lax and like walked home pretty quickly to 89th Street and like immediately poured like a huge glass of wine I, I, I might have been drinking a beer as I was pouring the wine because I needed to calm down and huh. it, it seemed that like I hit that wall or the accelerator however you want to view it rather quickly and I remember looking out I was high up I was looking which is unusual looking to the park I could even see the college that I went to where I felt inferior because it wasn't Yale or Harvard or whatever I could see the college on the hill in New Jersey that I went to and instead of being like wow look at this like how far I've come I thought why do I not feel okay what is wrong with me? Huh. Why don't I feel this incredible sense of accomplishment? Instead, I felt like a fraud. I felt a tremendous amount of anxiety. Uh, and it was really the anxiety I was just trying to kill every night. You know, but, you know while I got to work early, mm-hmm. I did. I, I left, you know, reasonably early, like 5.30 or 
six. So like 11 hard hours, but then I'm done. I don't have any work to do at night. So I get home at 6.20, 6.30. I would just hit it hard from 6.30 till nine. And that's all it took. I mean, it doesn't take too long, as you Mm. know. It's like you get a lot done in that time. So those rules that held fast for a lot of years of Monday through Thursday, you're a good boy, and then you go out and do what you want to do on the weekends, starting on Thursday night, let's say, those rules were broken by that point. Yes. And as I recall, it seemed to happen rather suddenly. So how did it manifest itself? What What were some of the consequences of that drinking at that time? My performance, I'm sure, was down. I mean, I always made it to work, always. Um, yeah. Crazily enough, I, st- I still always got up and, and ran every morning at like quarter of six. And, and during those years, huh. I was still running enough that I was running New York City Marathon every year. I, I never, ever stopped running. Running for me was, a, I guess, was my morning way to deal with anxiety in the a.m. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think what happened was I, you know, I started to drink enough so that Virtually every day I was hung over at work and I just mm-hmm. thought I was, mm-hmm. I don't know what I thought, Howard, but it's like, I don't know how I, it didn't occur to me, Sean, you're drinking too much. Stop. Right. Didn't, didn't even occur to me. It was just, I, I'm tired. I felt burnt out. I, I felt a, a lot of pressure. Things that didn't bother me before began to bother me at work. I don't want to disparage the entire industry. Um, but that there was more than a fair amount of, of lying and deception that went on in that business began to trouble me a lot. Uh, it was expected of you? More or less. Yes, more or less. It was like, it was like, just get it done, right? Don't violate laws, but, but, but get it done. So, yes. So there's a conflict there with your integrity and everything else. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. I'm baffled by how you could get up and run every morning with a hangover. So, so am I. I, I don't know how I did it. I think it was its own addiction that I had to do it, right? I needed to do it in my own head. So you're dealing with all this right now. You're drinking every, virtually every day. You said your performance was starting to slide. At, at what point did everything become problematic? Um, I was single. I had enough money in the bank to quit my job. Uh, I was friends with the guy who I worked for uh, for a number of years. In fact, still am. Uh-huh. I just told him I need to quit. I just I quit, and I had no plan. Mm. Just quit. As I look about how accommodative they were with me, I, I think that that was probably solving a problem for them. Um, but I quit, and um, so for the next several months after quitting, you know, and they were like, "Just Sean, Sean's retired. He's had it. He's hanging him up. You know, he's done." And at that time, it wasn't that unusual for people to, to retire early. I certainly did not have the ability to financially retire, but I had the ability to yeah. be okay for, for, for some time. You know, I, I, I just kept drinking um, and I wanted to learn how to fly. So I did start to take flying lessons. And th- this is where the first stop occurred was I, so I started to learn how to fly. I became a pilot. like, uh, And then when I was getting my instrument mm-hmm. rating, there was one day that I had to do a particular flight and I just couldn't do it. I went to the airport out in New Jersey. I'm still living in Manhattan like a year later mm-hmm. and I, I couldn't do it. I just could not do it. I just stopped on my own. Uh, I just stopped cold turkey because I couldn't stand it anymore. And I stopped for four years right, right there. Just on your own willpower. Yep. The fact that you were starting to fly and had the additional 
pressure of staying sober to be able to fly sober. Was that a big influence? Yes. Because I know how much you like flying, and I just was curious about that. It got in the way of something I really, it got in the way of a goal, and I'm, I still am, like, very goal-oriented, right? It was, like, I wanted to get this, another another rating, and it was like, that day was in the way. It was because I was so hungover. Um, and, you know, hmm. you obviously shouldn't fly drunk, but you shouldn't fly hungover either, because it's not like you've got all your wits about you when everything's out of your system. You feel like crap. Um so yeah, so yeah. I stopped and that lasted um, four years. Four years. That's amazing. So would you say you were drinking alcoholically before you quit on your own willpower? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We do know people who are able to just quit cold turkey and stay stopped for a while. What was life like during those four years? You know, because I will use the word willpower because that's what it was. It was willpower. It wasn't a fight every yeah. day. It became just another accomplishment for me. So my my thing was, I am not drinking, right? I, I just I'm just not going to do it. And it became like my own, like like oh, I've got like six months today, or I've got a year, or whatever it was, two years. And I remember distinctly on nine eleven, I was down, you know, in the city, and I was going to fly. Uh, back up to my house in in upstate New York, and a friend called me up on a, my cell phone and said, "Some plane hit the I, the airport wasn't all that far away from the Hudson River and all that stuff." So, uh -huh. so when I took off, I I saw what was going on over there, and um, that day, like when I got up to my house, I realized you know you're grounded. I was like the last plane in America down, right, or one of the last, and and it, oh, wow. and I remember thinking to myself. But today's the day I could drink, right? Because like I just saw, some, I just saw. Mm. Like that's all I did was I just saw. Who am I? I got nothing. I have no problems. Everyone that I knew and loved and cared about was okay. And but that day I thought to myself I could drink, and I go, no, 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 don't. You can't drink. And that was the only day I really ever really gave a thought until four years later, and, and for no reason I started to drink again for no reason. Wow. If 9-11 isn't enough of a reason, I, I can imagine the kind of willpower you had at that time. Yeah, but that's all it was. All that's, I was was not drinking. Yeah. yeah, that's all it was. Well, and of course, to somebody who wants to listen to, kind of between the lines and convince themselves that if you have the right motivation and the right willpower and the right uh, uh, amount of determination, you can do it. Sean was able to do it. But it doesn't sound like those four years were exceptional years for you. No. They were just years when you did what you wanted to do, huh? Yes. They were very selfish years. Like I was just living my life for me without any strategic plan about where I was going. It was just living a sybaritic life, you know, <laughs> life was sybarite or something. So this takes us up to the early 2000s and you, you go back out after four years. How long were you out then before you came into AA? Five years. You, okay, you were out, you were, you were not dry for five years, and then you hit AA for the first time? That's right. So what were the final days like in that five-year period? And what was, can you sum up that five-year period, and what were the final days like? It didn't take long till I started to drink alcoholically. You know, it's like, yeah. I oh, mean, really? the first night, I, uh -huh. the first time I drank, it was like quite a bit. Um, and then it, it, it stayed quite a bit. Hmm. You know, I managed to like be okay socially be okay with work but i was drinking too much the whole time uh -huh. and in in that time period i moved a couple of times i moved to chicago 
Then I, I got engaged uh -huh. and moved to San Francisco and got married a few months after I got engaged, had my son uh, 14 months after we got married, something like that. About Things were happening fast um, and the drinking was going on. Like it was feels like life just like just sped up and started to go by fast. And mind you, Howard, I had a lot of good things happening in my life. Like it, there was good stuff going on. I moved to Houston for a, a startup company that was got to be extremely successful. And uh -huh. that was fun until it wasn't right. I think that it was an exciting time in my life. But at the same time, like the, the I had unresolved issues with alcohol, right? That the four years of not, not drinking, like all that was, was a pause, like literally was a pause. I didn't come back out like, and to start to try. I came back out in, in the sprint that I went into those four years with. Yeah, I get that. So when people say that if you pick up again, you won't pick up where you left off, you'll pick up where you would have been had you not stopped. That's, I would say that's, that's very true. So at the end of this five-year period is marked by your younger brother telling you that he wanted you to go to AA and you better mm -hmm. you better damn do it. And that's when you first went. Yes. How were those early months and years in AA for you? I was kind of glad to be caught, right? It's like, you know, it's like, I'm glad my brother did what he did. I'd say that they were good. I, I still had challenges there. You know, I, I had a lot of work to do on me that hadn't been done. Right. I was way behind yeah. emotionally on where I needed to be as a husband, as a father. But I did. I loved the program. I mean, it was I, I want to say but by my second meeting, I met a couple of, of men that, that, you know, that gave me a list of meetings. They say, how often do you go to meetings? And I said, I don't know. They said, you're going to go every day. I'm like, OK. And they gave me a list of meetings in Houston, you know, for every day. Uh, and they included, you know, some yeah. of the meetings that you still go to. I, I remember so distinctly how much I loved the fellowship of the men, right? I, I was amazed. The, yeah. These guys showed up at meetings that I went to and they greeted me at each meeting and introduced me to other guys. And this was something I really wasn't used to, like the beauty of the fellowship. Yeah. And that attraction, not promotion. That's what it was. It was uh -huh. like, what well, these guys are. They're good guys. They're cool, good guys. And like AA wasn't a bunch yeah. of like losers that can't drink. It was, it was a bunch of winners that don't drink, right? So I love the program. So that was in 2009 and 2010, right, right till I moved in, uh, to, out of there in the summer of 2013. Yeah, my brother died in 2012. How do you feel the quality of your sobriety was uh, leading up to what we will talk about was a, a, an extraordinarily tragic event? What was your sobriety like? What, what was the state of your program as we go towards 2012? I'd say it was very good. There were parts that could always be better, right? But going to meetings, like talking to alcoholics, like that I was strong on, right? Some of the other things, yeah. I, like, you know, reading the literature, praying, like, less strong. But I was always like, I I'm going to go to meetings. And I'm going to, like, stay in touch with all these guys because that's what I felt was keeping me in a good place and getting me to a better place. And I remember you were in a pretty good place. I just wanted to confirm that because I remember the morning that your phone call woke me up. Wasn't it October of 2012? Yeah. Can you walk me through what that day was like for you and what happened? Yeah, I just spent the weekend uh, in upstate New York with 
with my brother and his then 15-year-old son, and I was there with my five-year-old son. And it was, we were on a lake and we had, his, yeah. had, had a gorgeous weekend. Anyway, um, he had said something about he was going to go to some, some fancy course in, in, in New Jersey, uh, golfing. And he was excited about being able to play, I think it's Pine Valley. I'm not a golfer in New Jersey. It's one of those fancy courses that's hard to get onto. Anyway, so I, we were just flying back. Uh, my wife, my son and I had just landed, uh, at, um, in Houston the night before. And my phone was blowing up, as was my wife's. It was my sister-in-law, my brother's wife, calling up saying that his helicopter was missing. And I didn't even understand what she meant, his helicopter's missing. I couldn't process it. Um, anyway, uh, quickly I gathered the information that he was flying in a helicopter back from New Jersey to, to where he lived in Connecticut. And uh, the helicopter left, and they didn't know where it was. Um, so... Mm. It, a, a lot of phone calls and, you know, we put my son to bed and I looked at the weather of where he was flying and it was, it was basically zero, zero. There was no visibility. And I'm going, why was he even mm -hmm. flying in a helicopter? Um, and I just had a really bad feeling. Anyway, um, they found, they found this, I found this during the night. It was, it was, it was a night where I, I didn't sleep, but maybe a half an hour, maybe an hour. Um, they found a, the helicopter was down. So I, I, it was a drip drip of information over, uh, eight hour period. And then, um, they found that two of three people, there was one survivor out of three people in the plane that, and we didn't know who that was. And then mm -hmm. I got a phone call saying that, um, that another one of the wives got a phone call saying her husband was going to the hospital, which meant that my brother was was one of the ones who was dead. And I spoke with my wife about what would Ty do if it were May, right? And we were already speaking about moving up here because um, he had three kids that were teenagers. So, you know, you, you ask about my program, my program that morning was I went to a meeting that I never went to. It was like, a, I think it was a 6 a.m. meeting. Yeah. Uh, and, and I went to that meeting uh, and I was scared because I was almost certain that Tig was dead. Um, and I, I, I think I raised my hand while somebody was speaking. I mean, like it was, I was completely out of turn. It wasn't, wasn't like normal. And, but you know, it's a, it's a sure. meeting. Nobody cares. Like you got to say something, say it. And I did. And, uh, I'll never forget this, Howard. One of the guys in, in the meeting, big John, uh, who was in the Marine Corps and yeah. he had been in an awful helicopter accident. Like he lost a lot of his friends over in Somalia. I think yeah. it was. And he came up and put his arm around me. And for the most part, I didn't know people in this meeting. And, uh, and then I, and I left that meeting crying. And, um, then I called you. Chris was getting me a, a flight, uh, up to, uh, to New York to, to get to be with his family. And then I got a phone call confirming that from, from his partner and, and longtime friend of, of our family, many, many, many decades, mm -hmm. well, decades, and told me that, you know, that Ty was dead. Um, oh, but, you know, I, I look back on that, Howard, you know, speaking with you, you, you were, you know, really calm um, and very caring. Um, and I don't know, you might remember this, you might not, but you asked me what you wanted the guys to do. Like, do you want, do you want to hear from them? Do you not want to hear from them? Like, cause they're, 
And I said, could you just have them text me? And he said, yes. And I landed at LaGuardia Airport, Howard, and my phone was just loaded with texts from from 150 guys, maybe maybe more, in the program. Yeah. And I, I felt like, and I, I told you, I said this at a meeting down there. I felt like there was this oxygen tube, like from from Houston to Connecticut, and I felt like I was breathing because of, yeah. because of the guys in the program. And it was obviously extremely wow. hard, right? And well, I got to get up mm-hmm. here, and I have to not only like try to process what's going on with me, but I've got his wife, his three kids, and and the pain they were feeling was uh, I'd never seen anything like yeah. it. Um, so it was it was something. It was certainly a moment in my life I yeah. never will forget. Yeah, I know that that was a real tragic day for you, and. Uh, it it took you quite a while to move through that and all of the all of the factors that are involved after somebody close passes away and they're leaving a family behind and, and that kind of thing. You're sober almost three years. When that happens, yeah, and I go in, and this is the typical Irish Catholic. He's got a big fancy house, right? I go in this yeah. house. Half the people are crying and half of them are drunk. I mean, it is, yeah. and it's crowded. There's cars everywhere, like everywhere. But I just made a decision. You know, I, my drinking, my sobriety stays. That's just, yeah. I'm on the plane, like, and I'm crying on the plane. And the flight attendant asked me, "Can they do anything? Can they do anything?" And she just said to me, "Do you mind me asking what's wrong?" And then another flight attendant told her her because I was yelling at somebody about I have to get on this plane. They weren't going to let me on the plane. So she brings me a big brown bag loaded with vodka bottles into my and she puts it on my side. oh no yeah and she was just trying to be kind i mean she was just right this is a eight o'clock flight and i just said please i, I don't need this right so um oh. you know i look and i just i just think about like you talk about you know the program being right there with you right and i thought this is mm-hmm. like testing time like how good is it mm-hmm. and it, man i'll tell you like anyone that that doubts the power of aa and, and specifically of the fellowship sure. you, you go through something like that you you realize you're just not alone like tig left me my, my brother who i was extremely close sure. with left me and yet i felt like i had 150 guys rooting for me in houston yeah. i really felt that and that that got me through it you know yeah. it's like and I, yeah I needed to help his family I was concerned about his kids specifically but yeah it shows that it works so not drinking in that situation wasn't particularly hard it wasn't like some heroic thing so when you say what was my program like it had to have been good if it wasn't if it wasn't hard I would say so. And especially being able to walk into a meeting that you're not a regular at and still see some men, you know, because I know that particular meeting has has guys from the meetings that you and I used to go to Mm -hmm. together. But to have that response. And I remember my phone was blowing up that day, too, because everybody wants to know how Sean doing, how Sean doing. So you got through that at three years. And then how long is it until the point at which you slipped or relapsed, I should say? And what were the circumstances? Sure. It was probably two years, 
I mean, years. it was a while. I, I moved up here. I wanted to be around his family. Uh, right. And we were. I mean, we really rallied like a big family. Um, and mm -hmm. there were some brutal times, but there was a, it was a lot of love, Howard. I mean, it was a yeah. lot. You know, it takes mm -hmm. a village sometimes, and it, and it took a village. But it was a couple of years, and then, you know... You know, okay, you, you realize you start to process things on your own. It's like, well, who are you? It's like, and then I start to feel like I was in, in the shadow of my brother. Because no matter what yeah. I did in my life, my brother did bigger and better. Like, like right. he cast a big shadow. And yeah. so I'm like no longer on my home turf. I'm literally in his town. And people know who I am, meaning they know that I'm his brother, right? And, right. and I felt like that's what my identity became was his brother. I am not mm. blaming my drinking on his death. It just, after a while, I found fault in the program, Howard. You've heard this story before, too. Wherever you get sober, it's never as good. Like, yeah. I, I, like I felt like I was in, like, Connecticut suburbia recovery versus Houston, like, real man recovery. You know? Well, yeah, and I remember you had plenty of reasons for not being able to go to meetings at that time. And you were looking to convince me uh, to the extent that I would say, well, don't worry about it. You'll go tomorrow or the next day. <laughs> yeah, you remember. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's difficult for a lot of people who move. It's no wonder some people do move away from their programs. Is that your pretty much your experience? Yes. I remember speaking to you about some of it and, you know, about me not getting something from a meeting and you saying to me, did you ever think that you might go to a meeting for someone else besides yourself? That someone else, someone else might need you there, and I'm going. God, it's just like I hate when you someone tells me something that's so right, you know. And I've thought about that over the years. You know, sometimes I do yeah. go to meetings and I go, you know, someone else might need me. Uh, you don't, yeah. you know, you have no idea. So you were starting to pull away from the program at that sure. point. What did that look like? You know, a, a marriage that was failing for sure. It, it had problems in Houston, as as you know, and so my marriage was failing my career was failing um the only thing that wasn't failing was this this beautiful boy that you know that i've always been so blessed to have and still do yeah. um yeah. i couldn't see a lot of good in my life i, I couldn't see a lot yeah. of reasons for being the only reason i could see was was my son and that's i didn't want him to grow up thinking that you know the only reason dad thinks he should live is because of his son. I mean, you should have your own life aside from just your children. Yeah. It started to go, Howard, and I was up at the lake and, you know, just the gin and tonic looked, looked mighty fine. Out it came and it was hidden through those months or so I thought. Interestingly, um, I think that like, you know, you hear about an allergy we have with, with alcohol. I never could drink what I used to drink yeah. and I, I'd have headaches within an hour of drinking. So it's, it, it stopped working. Like, I mean, it got me drunk, but it didn't, it, it didn't even make me feel good for a night and then like to deal with it the next day. It would be like if mm -hmm. I was sneaking a drink at 4.30 in the afternoon at, at the lake, obviously it was always three. By eight o'clock, I was hungover, so it was it wasn't fun, and that went on for yeah. a bunch of months, as as did my lies, and those lies really start to bother you. And my wife yeah. said to me, "It sounds like you're slurring," and it's like so she was catching me. Yeah. She asked me point blank one day, "You were drinking last night, and you have been drinking," so she got me yeah. that time. I said yes, and that was all she wrote on that one. Is it my imagination or did she call me one time and was concerned about you? I can't remember if that was her or maybe. I think she did. 
I think she did. And I couldn't say too much to her because of, you know, the sponsor-sponsee relationship. But I remember she was very, very concerned about you during that time. So you were out there for, you said, what, about four or five months? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Still being untruthful with people about being sober. Yes. I remember thinking that you were still sober, and then you told me about that. Yeah, I spoke with you about it, and... This is what I recall. This is now a while ago, but I, I know I know at some point you and I spoke about it and you said, well, you've got to be honest with people. I had and still have pretty much this similar group of guys. It's like what you have in Houston, just smaller. But this group of guys sure. I run with here. And I went to our Wednesday 530 men's meeting. It's like our mm-hmm. it's our deal. Right. And yeah. I just it wasn't my turn. It wasn't anything. <laughs> I just, it was like, I guess when I got something to say, I'm going to say it, right? Uh And I told those guys, you know, that I've been lying to you all and like I've been drinking and like the reality is I've got, I got one day sober and that's today. Hmm. And, you know, I told them that I had been busted at home, that my life had come unglued. Uh, You know, I didn't share too long, but I'd say I shared quite a bit. You know, another thing to love about this program is just the acceptance that people have. You know, I remember the guys like hugging me and just saying, it's what we do, Sean. Like we lie, we drink, we do drugs. Like what the miracle is, is that we don't do it. Right. Is. And I remember so much encouragement from these guys. It's like, don't get discouraged. Mm -hmm. Like there's been so many relapses. Right. And so now there's a relapse in your story, Sean. Okay. And, uh, you know, that was really a big thing to me was was that that Wednesday meeting speaking to those guys and telling them that I, and having them completely accept me and love me and then that's don't worry about it I went from whatever it was five years to one day right that ego deflation yeah. it was like they kind of didn't care I'm still Sean yeah. they cared only that I got back like on the beam that's all they cared about yeah. And that, that was that was my feeling about it at the time, too. Right. You know, one of the reasons why I think people gather around and are so supportive and nonjudgmental is not only because that's what we do in AA. It's also, I think, a response to the courage that the man who is coming back in demonstrates by being willing to stand up and say, I slipped, I relapsed. Mm-hmm. There's something about that experience of being in that room with a man who's doing that. I think it's astonishing. I think it's one of those things that we we may be sitting there thinking there, but for the grace go mm-hmm. I, but at the same time, we're admiring and grateful for the courage that that man is showing on what it takes to get back. And who knows how many men saw that who may not have gone out because of being touched by your experience. I mean, that to me is always the gift in that situation. It's a gift that keeps giving, Howard, because now when I go to meetings now, so now we're eight years past that, right? Obviously, I've been at many meetings, as have we all, where we hear that, right? So I see guys that I know yeah. that have some some time. I see that they've relapsed and I'm there right. and I go, been there, done that. There's no sin yeah. in that. Yeah. It's like, it's it, it's okay. Your experience, strength, yeah. and hope, right? It's like, there you go. It's like, I've been there, right? And you, you, the, the empathy yeah. is, is, is something else. Yeah. As you look back over the last eight and a half years, can you name me one or two extraordinary things that have happened that you would look at as a direct result of a spiritual awakening or just your working of the AA program? Yeah, I'd say, you know, that, you know, I, you know, I got divorced, right? That marriage did not work. And... 
the relationship that I have with my now 15-year-old son and with my, my ex-wife is startling. And so he's growing up, while his parents were divorced, he's growing up very happy and not feeling like he's in a, quote, broken home. He's just in a different home. That would have been impossible to have as amicable a split as we have had, where we authentically care about one another in our joint raising of our son. So to me, that's that's a miracle. What I have, like, and so that's that's one thing is is that unbelievable relationships that matter the most to me, right? And yeah, I have a happy, well-adjusted, fifteen-year-old, nice really just a, a nice kid who's just relaxed and knows he's loved, knows he's supported. His parents are just divorced and don't live together. We live three miles from each other and we speak every morning about well, what's his day like and who's driving him, which sadly isn't going to last that much longer until he's driving himself. But, right. So uh -huh. like, there's that. And then there's just living outside of myself. My world does not revolve around me anymore. And, and it used yeah. to. It used uh -huh. to be, I want to accomplish this. Yeah. I want to do that. Like I, 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 and it's, it's helping other alcoholics. It's helping other people. How can I be of service in any way, whatever it is? Yeah. I, w I would say I wouldn't have bet on it, but I, I wouldn't have even known about it to bet on it. Right. So that's exceptional. And, and I think that anybody who's working as good a program as you appear to be working will speak freely of those kind of gifts in their lives as well. And so as I hear you relate to me a large chunk of your life that I wasn't necessarily part of on an ongoing basis, I'm so glad that you and I have been able to reconnect as a result of doing this particular podcast interview. Uh, I honor your sobriety and your story I still, to this day, when I think back to that morning when you called me and how the program came through, that's still one of the, one of my fondest and most striking memories over the years. Would it be safe to say that uh, we can boil that all down to a power greater than ourselves? Oh, we can. We, sure, we surely can. Yeah. No question. It's not me, right? It's not me. When I see you working your program, uh, I'm greatly inspired. And so... I want to thank you again for doing this. I love you. You're a big part of my life. And I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to, to do this interview this morning. Me as well, Howard. You know, I love you. You know that. Thanks again, Sean. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Sean S., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please take a minute to give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will help others find us. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all podcast production costs. No one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.